Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to Micah chapter 5. Micah is right in the middle of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Um, So find Daniel and go about six more books forward toward the New Testament. Or the New Testament and back six books and you'll come to Micah. God's gift to you. God's gift to you. Micah writes, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." Father, we're so grateful for what we celebrate at this time of the year. That you sent your Son. You so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. The transcendent God has sent His Son to be imminent among us, to be near. Lord, we thank you that you entered into this world. Your Son took on flesh so that He might be our sympathetic high priest in addition to being our Savior. And God, I want to pray for any here today who do not as of yet know Christ. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move upon their hearts today to bring about conviction. Lord, may they understand better than ever what you have done in their behalf. I pray that you would open their minds, open their hearts, open their life to surrender to the Lord Jesus. Speak to them. And Lord, through your word, may we get a renewed glimpse of the fact that you are a God who keeps your promises. We can depend upon you. We can build our lives upon you. And you're our shepherd who will guide us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Lord, amidst all the destructions and the, and the clamoring of this time of year, help us to focus afresh and anew upon your gift to us, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. The year was 1914, and it was the first Christmas day of World War I. What happened next? The Wall Street Journal wrote about it as being nothing short of inspiring. British and German troops put down their guns in their respective trenches on the Western Front. 
And they began to celebrate Christmas together in no man's land between the two sides. It's said that the Germans strung lights on Christmas trees and and put those trees up high visible so that the English troops could see them. The English troops, on the other hand, lit big bonfires and set off rockets so that the Germans could see that. And then the soldiers exchanged gifts that had been sent to them from home. They exchanged gifts of tobacco, jams and jellies, sausage, chocolate, and liquor. And traded names and addresses with one another so they could touch base perhaps with one another after the war. They sang Christmas carols together and played games of soccer between the shell holes and the barbed wire. They even went so far as to visit in one another's trenches. The day is called the most famous truce in all of military history by British television producer Malcolm Brown. Private Oswald Tilly of the London Rifle Brigade wrote to his parents. He said, and I quote, Just you think that while you were eating your turkey, I was out talking and shaking hands with the very men I'd been trying to kill a few hours before. It was simply astounding. High command on both sides got wind of what was going on and took steps to ensure that it would never ever happen again. You see, they feared that if this sentiment spread any further, it would take away the will of the soldiers to fight and to kill. But it seems that even in the midst of war, men desired peace. Folks, it's been recorded that since the beginning of written history, the world has only been at peace entirely about 8% of the time. And in that same amount of time, over 8,000 treaties have been broken. Now that begs the question, is real peace in this world possible? Well, I want us to see this morning what the Scripture says about that. We turn to the book of Micah and we we know that the prophet Micah lived and prophesied in the 8th century B.C. with his prophecies occurring during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That makes him a contemporary of Isaiah. Now, Micah was a lot like Amos. Micah and Amos both were country preachers. Isaiah was more refined. Micah and Amos were the country preachers of the 8th century. Now according to R.K. Harrison in his introduction to the Old Testament, the Hebrew manuscripts of the book of Micah are the best preserved manuscripts of any other prophet of the 8th century that we possess. Micah explained that because of the sins of Israel, God had sent the Assyrians as his arm, or was going to send the Assyrians, I should say, as his arm of judgment and punishment against them. And then after that, about a hundred years later, God would send the Babylonians to be the judgment against the people of Judah. But what... 
God wants his people to understand in the book of Micah is that they don't need to lose hope. Yes, all of these judgments are going to come about. God is going to discipline them and and judge them, but following that time is going to be a time of tremendous blessing. And all of God's blessings are going to converge together and center in on one figure, the Messiah that he is going to give to his people. At some time in the future, he prophesied, a woman would give birth to a child in Bethlehem and the child, according to verse 5, will be their peace. It makes me think of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 9, 6. He will be called the Prince of Peace. Some 700 to 750 years later, in a cave on the outskirts of Bethlehem, a virgin by the name of Mary gave birth to this promised Messiah who brought peace. Now folks, what we see today in this scripture is that in times of trouble, God intervenes on behalf of his people. Times of trouble and times of darkness, God intervenes. And that's exactly what he did in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a God who keeps his promises. Now the first thing I want you to see with me this morning is the place of his birth prophesied. In verse 2 he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now like many of the prophets in the Old Testament, what Micah has been doing is confronting the sin of his people. Micah's contemporaries have been living lives of disobedience to God. They've been disobeying the word of God, not living according to the plumb line, the standards of God's word, and they've been going their own way. Just like the book of Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And Micah, through the four previous chapters, has been talking about even God's people doing this. God's people turning a deaf ear to what God has told them. And they are living lives of disobedience. They're living lives of arrogance. They're living as though they are in charge of their own lives and somehow or another don't really need God. And so Micah is saying because of that they are going to suffer God's judgments and his disciplines. Now on top of their own disobedience, another thing that had happened to the people of Micah's day is that they were suffering from one bad leader after another. God had sent them good leaders and they would reject those good leaders and then bad leaders would come along and those bad leaders would lead the people astray even further than how they were already living. And so Micah was saying that God is going to judge them. You see, the people had failed to walk in those ancient paths. 
You remember what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 6.16? Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And so the rulers did not rule justly, the shepherds did not shepherd, and the prophets did not prophesy according to the truth. And because of this, as I mentioned earlier, the northern kingdom was going to uh, face judgment at the hands of the Assyrians. The Assyrians would come in and wipe out the northern kingdom and the northern kingdom for all practical purposes would cease to exist. And then about a hundred years later the southern kingdom would have the Babylonians come in who would destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem, capture much of the people of Judah, carry them away into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And so the judgment of God was coming. As the Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. God was warning them of difficult days ahead. Folks, the Bible never sugarcoats sin. In fact, the Bible plainly says, it says that sin is a reproach to any people. And as Micah pointed out, judgment was coming and they would have nobody to blame but themselves. But through Micah, God was also telling his people that he would regather his children in the land one day. God would send them the Messiah and eventually the Messiah would lead the entire world. And so Micah encompasses, the book of Micah encompasses the time leading up not only to the first advent of Christ, but all the way up to the second advent of Christ. And all of their hopes would be centered in this one that God was going to give them. Folks, God is so specific in what He promises. Amen? He's so specific. I want you to look again at verse 2 because God there even points out the place where the Messiah is going to be born. Now I want, you to, I want you to stop and think about what's going on here. 700 to 750 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, God told his people exactly where the Messiah was going to be born. And when he came to this world, when he was born into this world, we see that he wasn't born into wealth or power. He wasn't born as the son of one of the the emperors or one of the Caesars. He wasn't even born in Israel as the son of one of the religious leaders. He came quietly and softly just as uh, Andrea and Will sang about a little earlier. He came without any fanfare. In fact, he came so quietly that the people, most of the people, overlooked his arrival altogether. But as we read Micah chapter 2 and then we bring it together with the New Testament, we see how God fulfilled all of this exactly. It all took place exactly as God said it would. In fact, I want you to see this. This morning I want to to tie a lot of these passages together. And so take your Bible and turn with me over to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2 it says there in verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Folks, I want you to stop and think with me this morning how amazing all this is. Again, over 700 years earlier, God had said that Bethlehem Ephratah was going to be the place where God was going to send them a ruler, a shepherd, who would not be like any other ruler or shepherd they had ever known before. God was going to send His chosen one. And think about the sovereignty of God in all of this. To get Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem at the right time, the Roman rulers issued a census to be taken so that everybody would be registered. And that meant that Joseph had to take his betrothed wife, who was by this time great with child, and go all the way down to Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephratah in Judea, because he was of the house of David. God used this census to get Joseph and Mary where they needed to be at just the right time. You know what that tells us? God is absolutely sovereign. We look at everything going on in the world, all the darkness, all the chaos, all the trouble in the world, and sometimes we're tempted to wring our hands and and be filled with anxiety. We wonder about everything going on in the world. We wonder about a lot going on in our own nation, and we ask the question sometimes, where is God in all of this? Well, God's in charge. He's sovereign. History is His story. History is not out of control. God is guiding it along to his desired purposes just like he's talked about in his word. And here is one chapter in the sovereignty of God. That because God had said the birth of the Messiah would take place in Bethlehem, uh, Ephratah of Judea, God was arranging this census to be taken to get Joseph and Mary there at just the right time. It should give you and I confidence in our own lives. God is sovereign. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know, not that we guess, not that we hope, not that we think, but we know that God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. That is the kind of God that we serve. He's a God who makes promises and a God who who keeps promises. He's a God that we can depend on. And folks, even furthermore about this prophecy, when you, when you read about all the towns in Israel, there was more than one Bethlehem. You see, there was a Bethlehem up north in Galilee that was of the tribe of Zebulun. That that Bethlehem is spoken of in the book of Joshua, the 19th chapter. 
This is a, diff, a different Bethlehem. This is Bethlehem Ephratah that was in the south, only about five miles away from Jerusalem. And so when God gave this prophecy in Micah 5, he didn't just say Bethlehem because that could have been confused. He said Bethlehem Ephratah, pointing out the specific one. Amazing. Amazing. And think of how fitting it is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem in the Hebrew means the house of bread. And so the one who is going to be the bread of life for the world was born in a place that was known as the house of bread. Now folks, we know what happened. If you turn with me over to Matthew chapter 2, we've just seen what happened uh, according to Luke chapter 2. But look at Matthew chapter 2 as well. It says in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Israel. Not only did God get Joseph and Mary down there in Bethlehem at just the right time in, in the right place where the Messiah was to be born, but we're even told how wise men from the east saw his star. The star, the Shekinah glory of God that that was like a road map in the skies that these wise men who were expecting the Messiah to come one day when they saw that they knew what it was, they knew what it signified and they made that long journey from the east. Let me tell you a little bit about the wise men. They're the mad joy. The mad joy as the word is. The great ones. The powerful ones. And they first appear in history in approximately the 7th century B.C. also. Within a tribe in the Median nation in eastern Mesopotamia. It, it may be that a lot like Abraham, they were of Ur of the Chaldeans. The word magi soon came to be associated strictly with the priesthood within that tribe. They became skilled in in astronomy and astrology. They were involved in various occult practices including sorcery and were especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. We get our words magic and magician from these guys, from magi or magi. Now because of their combined knowledge of science, agriculture, mathematics, history, and the occult, their religious and political influence continued to grow until they became the most prominent and powerful group of advisors in the Medo-Persian Empire and also the Babylonian Empire. They were referred to as the wise men. Now folks, how in the world would these wise men from the east 
how would they have had this hope of a Messiah in them? Well, you remember Daniel. Daniel who was taken captive in Babylon. And Daniel was raised in prominence. He was put in charge of all the wise men in Babylon. The hand of God was upon him. The whole 70 years Daniel was there. And Daniel was being a testimony to Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and the other rulers of the land. No doubt the wise men of Daniel's day would have heard all about Daniel's God. And Daniel would have been the one to tell them about this one that is to come because in the book of Daniel he talks about the ancient of days and the Savior that's to come. And so no doubt from Daniel these men, these men who had hung out with Daniel uh, and, and their descendants, they were waiting on God's Messiah to come. And so when they saw this star, they knew that the time had been fulfilled. And they went and they found the baby Jesus. And when they found Jesus, uh, they gave to Jesus gifts fitting of a king. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. These gifts were important. They were symbolic They were prophetic in and of themselves. William Barclay says, Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh for one that was to die. These were gifts of the wise men. And even at the cradle of Christ, they foretold that he was to be the true king, the perfect high priest, and in the end, the supreme savior of men. But folks, what I want you to understand this morning, all of this came together according to to prophecy according to God's promises what God promised would happen happened exactly the way that he said it would and you know what confidence that gives to you and me don't you that means that any other promises in the, in the Word of God that have not yet been fulfilled, we can count on the fact that all of them are going to be fulfilled just like he said they would I mean, there were 300 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, mathematically impossible for one person to fulfill all of those, and yet Christ fulfills them all. How could that happen? Because He's God's Son. God keeps His Word. And so let you and I today be confident that everything God has told us about in His Word Even though we don't always see, we don't always understand, sometimes we look at everything going on in the world and we we question how everything's going to end up. Yet by reading our Bibles, we can know and we can know that we serve a God who does not lie. Now the second thing I want you to see with me this morning is the purpose of His life promised. Look at verse 2 and then at verse 4. Verse 2, he says, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And then down in verse 4, he says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And so he's going to have a dual purpose. In verse 2 we see that that he's going to be a ruler. In verse 4 we see that he's going to be a shepherd. 
And notice what verse 2 says about the kind of ruler he's going to be. He's not going to be like any other ruler because any other ruler has a beginning, but not him. He will be from ancient days of old. What God is talking about here in Micah 5 2 is that he is not going to have a beginning. Now, how can that be? Because he's going to be God's son, the eternal son of God. Just like the father, never a beginning, never an ending. He's always been there. It's just like what John said in John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John is saying in the beginning, when the beginning happened, the word was already there. And he was with God, face to face with God, on equal footing, eyeball to eyeball. In other words, he's equal with God. How can that be? Because he's God's son. And so he's going to be a ruler that is unlike any other ruler. Now folks, as the people heard that, I want you to think with me a moment about the amount of promise and hope that would have been in that. Because God was promising them just the right kind of ruler. They had been subjected to bad rulers. There's a lot of them that we could talk about. Let me just give you a couple as an example. You'll remember when Solomon died and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, took over the throne and he promised that he was going to tax the people even heavier than his father did. Jeroboam took ten of the tribes and split off uh, from Israel and formed the northern kingdom. It, uh, Israel became Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes in the south. And Jeroboam did such a foolish thing. Once they split off and went up north, uh, Jeroboam didn't want the people going back down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. He didn't want them going and offering sacrifices at the temple, even though that's where God said that worship and sacrifice was going to take place. And so in two different places in the northern kingdom, he set up an altar, and then at that altar... He made a golden calf to put at each altar. How foolish. Does that remind you of anything? Reminds you of when the children of, uh, of Israel came out of Egypt. And Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. And the people grew restless. And they told Aaron to make for them a god, an idol. And so they gave Aaron all their gold jewelry and he made that golden calf. And they bowed down and worshipped that golden calf. How foolish can you be? And yet here Jeroboam has the people repeat that very sin. Terrible leader. They knew all too well about terrible leaders and, and the blight on the land that terrible leaders had been. I think also about Ahab who married Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel together brought all kinds of idolatry into the land through Baalism. Baalism was the fertility cult of the Canaanites. Terrible rulers. And yet God was saying when the Messiah came, he would be a righteous ruler, the perfect ruler. 
He would be the king of kings and lord of lords unlike any other ruler they had ever known about and he would rule his people in perfect righteousness. That's the kind of God that he is. Well folks, they had not only suffered from bad rulers but they had suffered from bad shepherds also. Ezekiel 34, God said, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, all all shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves should not shepherds feed the sheep. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Not only had the, had the children of God had bad rulers, but they had had bad shepherds who did not teach them the word of God. They didn't teach them the law of God. We're told elsewhere in the prophets, God says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. They didn't know the word of God because the shepherds didn't feed the people the word of God. But when the Messiah came, he would. Reminds me of Matthew 9 where the Bible says Jesus saw, saw the multitudes coming out to him and his heart was stirred with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Imagine this, they had 6,000 priests in the land in that day. Six thousand, they had so many priests, they literally had to go and work the temple in shifts. They had so many of them. And yet Jesus, when he looked at the multitudes in the land, they were like sheep without a shepherd. But Jesus was going to be the shepherd of his people. He's the one who feeds us. He's the one who perfectly exemplifies what God wants us to see and know. You want to know what it looks like when, when God is our shepherd? Psalm 23, David said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he went on to testify how God looked after all of his physical needs, all of his spiritual needs, and all of his emotional needs. Whatever need David had in his life, David said, with God is my shepherd, I shall not want. John 10.10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I've come to give you abundant life. He went on to say in John 10, the good shepherd knows his sheep by name. And they know him. They hear his voice and he follow, they follow him. And he shall give unto them eternal life. And no one shall snatch them out of his hand. That's the kind of shepherd Jesus is. Amen? In Jesus Christ, folks, not only do we have a Savior, but we have somebody who can rule our life and rule it in perfect righteousness and as a shepherd of our life he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake he will never lead you astray he will never lead me astray he will lead us in the way that God wants us to go he's the good shepherd the purpose of his life was to come and be not only our savior but a ruler and a leader and a shepherd. Do you know him 
in those roles? Is He sitting on the throne of your heart? Is He King and Lord of your heart? And does He lead you as your shepherd? Do you look to Him for guidance and decisions in your life? Well, thirdly this morning, I want you to see something else that's told about Him. The priority of his ministry proclaimed. Look at what he said there in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, And he shall be their peace. This one will be our peace. Now it's interesting the analogy that Micah gives here. If we were to read on, if we were to continue reading in verse 5 and read down through the following verses we would see a very interesting analogy being made. He starts talking about when the Assyrians came into the northern kingdom and then also tried to surround Hezekiah in Jerusalem and attack them. Sennacherib came in with all kinds of arrogance and he said, the, uh, your God is not going to deliver you from my hands. Just talk to the other nations. Have their gods been able to deliver them from me and my armies? Well, your God is not going to deliver you either. And Sennacherib mocked Hezekiah and he mocked the God of the Jews. Well, you know what happened that night. The Bible says God sent the angel of the Lord through the camp of the Assyrians and 185,000 of them were struck dead. Sennacherib woke up the next morning, saw his army destroyed, knew that something miraculous had taken place there and in humility with this tail tucked between his legs, so to speak, he took the rest of his troops and he went back to Assyria. And there in Assyria, his own two sons rose up against him and killed him with the sword. Now I want you to see what's going on here with that analogy. What God is saying, he's using that as an example that exactly what God did in behalf of his people in the days of Sennacherib, the way he delivered his people, that was going to be an illustration of how once again he was going to come and deliver his people and give them peace. Powerful analogy. Remember Isaiah 9.6 said, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. When the Messiah came, He would bring God's peace. Amen? Do you know God's peace? Do you know Christ? When we talk about peace... We, we think of, first of all, peace with God and then peace with man. Vertical first and then horizontal. Let's talk first about that peace with God. I think of Jerome, the church leader. He said that he had a dream one night and in that dream, 
God came to him and he decided that he was going to present all of his money to God. And God said, Jerome, I don't want your money. So he gathered then all of his possessions together. And God said, Jerome, I don't want your possessions either. And Jerome said, well, God, what do you want? And God said, Jerome, give me your sins. That's why I came, to die for your sins. Jesus Christ came to give us peace with God. Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, there at the cross, secured peace through the blood of His cross, as Paul said in the book of Colossians. Jesus died for us, what what theologians call the substitutionary atonement. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray in Isaiah 53. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He died in your place and in my place. He died for your sin and my sin. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, the just died for the unjust that He might bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. Substitution. The Messiah came, not the first time, to set up the throne of David to throw off the yoke of the Romans. That's what everybody was expecting. But if they had read the Old Testament... Old Testament more carefully, they would have seen he came the first time to die. He's coming again to rule, yes, and he will come again. But he came the first time to die on the cross for our sins so that we might have peace with God through him. Do you know that peace? Has there ever been a time in your life that you've trusted Christ and Christ alone? To save you of your sins and forgive you. So many people today think they can do something to earn it. Or do something to gain it. Or keep this law or that law. And as Paul said in Romans chapter 3. If salvation could have come through a law. Then God would have given a law. The law is just a mirror that shows us our sin and our need of God's grace. So that we'll cast ourselves on God's mercy and come to him through faith. Trusting what he did for us through his son Jesus. Have you come to Christ? If you've come to Christ and Christ has forgiven you of your sins, I want you to understand this morning that in the mind and the heart of God, a heavenly exchange has taken place. Christ took your condemnation. He took the wrath of God against sin and He has given you peace. Romans 8, 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Folks, when a person is born again, a heavenly exchange takes place. We become a new creation in Christ where all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new and we enter into this state of being at peace with God. Now subjectively, we don't always feel it. Objectively, it's happened. 
We're in this state of peace. And as we draw near to God and walk in fellowship with Him, subjectively, we know it in our hearts. We know we've been forgiven. But whether or not you feel it or not, salvation is not based on feelings. If you are in Christ, objectively, your position has moved from being in a place of enmity with God to now being at peace with God. He is your peace. But I want you to understand this Christmas season that if you're not in Christ, you don't have that peace. You are still in that state of hostility toward God. Whether you've got a clenched fist in the face of God or not doesn't matter. You can think you live a perfect life. But the way God sees your life, if you are outside of Jesus Christ, you are in that place of hostility toward God. And if you die in that state of alienation and hostility toward God, you will go out into eternity without Christ. But to come to Christ means you're forgiven and you have peace. And then to those who have that peace... Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. The Messiah. He's to be our ruler. He's to be our shepherd. And he is our prince of peace who puts us into that state of peace with God. Amen? Folks, that's why he came. That's why he came. And you know, the Bible says that one of these days when Christ returns for his church and sets up his rule and reign, the earth is going to get a taste of how his rule is going to be. Isaiah 65 talks about that. The prophet says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. You look down at verse 21. He says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands they shall neither labor in vain or bear children for calamity look down at verse 24 he says before they call I will answer while they are yet speaking I will hear the wolf and the lamb shall graze together the lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains says the Lord one day The earth is going to know that kind of peace. But the Bible says, even today, you can have that kind of peace in your heart through faith in Christ. Would you bow your heads, please? I wonder if I'm speaking to somebody this morning who's come to church at Christmas, it seems like the right thing to do. 
And by the way, thank God that you're here. But perhaps you have never entered into this state of peace with God. You've tried to be good. You've tried to do what you should. And yet the scripture says you are still in your sin. Has the Lord been working on your heart, convicting you of sin? Do you just, it just seems like in your heart and mind you don't have peace with God and yet you want that? That's the Holy Spirit doing in your heart what nobody else but He can do. He's convicting you. That's what the Bible says the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us of our sin and draws us to Jesus. The scripture says today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart and turn him away. Say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you to be on the throne of my life. King of kings and Lord of lords in my heart. You are king of kings and lord of lords, but I want you king of kings and lord of lords in my heart. I surrender to you today. Forgive me of my sins. What you did at Calvary when you shed your blood... Lord, I want that to count for me. I want your blood to wash away all of my sins. I want to be clean in your sight. I want to have peace with God. Come into my life and do that. And if you mean business with God and God's been convicting your heart, He'll come in. He's been convicting you so you will have that relationship with Him. And you know, there may be some people here today without a doubt in your mind, you made that decision many, many years ago. You know that. But perhaps of recent days, you've not let him be the shepherd of your life. You've made too many of your own decisions. And maybe this season of the year, you've been sensing that God is trying to draw you back to himself. The Bible says in the book of James, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Take that step to him this morning. And see what he does in your life. There may be others that need to come forward desiring a church home where you can worship with other believers. We'd love to help you. We'd love to be your church home. You come forward as well. The altar's going to be open for those who just want to kneel before the Lord. or just You may just want to do that right there in your seat. Kneel before the Lord. But if you need Christ, come forward and confess Him publicly. Or if you need a church home, come forward. Lord, thank you for everything that Christmas symbolizes in the Christian faith. 
We celebrate the birth of Jesus, but not just to celebrate the birth and forget about everything else, but the fact you sent him to this world to go to the cross and die. And Lord, he didn't stay dead. He was laid in that tomb, and the Bible says, the third day you raised him from the dead, and today he's at the right hand of the throne of God, and he's coming back one day. Not coming back to suffer, but to be that king that all will see. May each heart in life be ready. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.